Please remain standing and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 16 through 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. And then we're going to turn over to Lamentations and read Lamentations chapter 3, verses 19 to 36. And that is the text I'll be speaking from this morning. The first will begin in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in the 16th verse. I will be reading now the New American Standard Bible. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And then turning over to Lamentations, chapter 3. It was fascinating. Now, God does this commonly on Sunday mornings at our church. Uh, we find synergy where no synergy was planned. Lamentations is the fulfillment of the Deuteronomy passage that we read this morning. Israel in Lamentations is experiencing the curse given to them because of their disobedience. So we'll begin in Lamentations chapter 3, the 19th verse. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent, since he has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach. For the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the land, to deprive a man of justice in the presence of the Most High, to defraud a man in his lawsuit. Of these things the Lord does not approve. The word of God. Please be seated. I don't know how many of us have played sports growing up or even play them now, but in sports you can learn a lot of lessons. 
Sports teach you about teamwork. They teach you about sacrifice. But I think one of the greatest things that I personally learned from sports is about body control. When I played baseball, I learned that it was vital to watch the ball all the way into the glove, to watch the ball all the way to the bat. It's also pretty important to keep your eye on where you're throwing the ball so you actually hit your target. When I ran cross country and track, I learned it was important to keep your head up. Look where you're going. Concentrate on it. Keep your upper body loose, your back straight, your legs stretching out. If you don't and you look down while you're running, you lose sight of your goal. You don't see your progress. Running becomes very laborious then. And your technique goes out the window as you're looking down. You see, looking down causes you not to run in a straight line. You lose control of your upper body. Your arms start flailing instead of going forward as they should. Looking down at the ground affects your attitude. It affects even your air as you're leaning over, crushing your diaphragm. As you run, you have to look up. Look out where you're going. When you're running and you think you're going to die because of lack of oxygen, you know, you're just wanting to stop. You have to find a goal out in front of you. And you look at that goal and you run towards it. And about the time you get there, you wave it off and you look for another goal that's even further down the track. Goals are important. Looking up is important as you're going up that hill, looking to the crest, as you're going around the bend on the track, as you're going down the curve. Running is as much a mind game as it is a physical activity, physical ability. It requires focus. You know, I can't think of a sport that doesn't require focus, doesn't require you to keep your eyes on something in particular to remain successful. In our text today, the author is going to talk a lot about where our eyes are to be focused. What it is that we're to look at as we live the Christian life. What we will see is that because God gives us abundant life, we must focus on Him. We must focus on God's character. We must focus on His purposes. And we must focus on His justice. The first section I want to look at today comprises of verses 19 to 26. And we start out in verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. This verse is somewhat of a summary of what has come before. Israel has been invaded. They've gone through a siege of Jerusalem. Life has been nothing but bad. And the poet here is looking at his experience of being destroyed by Babylon, being destroyed by the enemies of God. He has lost everything in the first two chapters of Lamentations. He's left in a state of bitterness. He's just wandering through life. Nothing is working for him. God has fed him <clears throat> a steady diet of defeat, which has made his life bitter. Remember 
that wormwood is used because it's an extremely bitter plant. This theme is continued in verse 20. Surely my soul remembers is bowed down within me. The poet sits and he reflects on his life. All that has happened in his soul within him is crushed. As one reads Lamentations, we see violence everywhere. Violence done to Israel, God's people. Violence in the 18 months that the siege took to starve Jerusalem. Or we see them entering Jerusalem and slaughtering the people in the streets. Or we see their unjust rule after they've defeated Jerusalem. We read in the text of men and women and children being killed mercilessly. We even read of mothers who eat their babies in order to survive. Old men dying as they rummage for food. The young men and the virgins taken off to some foreign land they've never known. And they will never be seen again. Families broken up. Children gone. Parents left. And there stands the poet. There stands Israel. Helpless. They can't do a thing about it. We must agree their lives are bitter. We understand them losing hope in this situation. Just imagine what they've seen. What they've experienced. We sit here and we, we think to ourselves, man, I hope that never happens to me. That would be terrible. As we focus on the poet's conditions, we're brought to empathize with him. But then he goes to verse 21. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. This is a pivotal transition the poet thinks about something. He's been thinking about this change. This thinking, his thinking changes because of the hope that he has. He hasn't been thinking about this hope, but now he does. What is it that his heart starts thinking about? Verse 22. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. The poet stops. He stops looking out at what is happening or has happened to him. He stops looking at himself and his condition. The poet starts looking up, looking to God. And that changes everything. Who is this God that I serve? Who is this God that controls all things? including what has happened to me. He remembers who God is. The Lord's loving kindnesses never cease. The God he serves is Yahweh. The God that stays and never leaves. The God who is faithful to his people. The God whose loving kindnesses never cease. Now, loving kindnesses is a word that was coined by the King James Version. It speaks of God's covenant faithfulness. His covenant faithfulness to his people. 
His loving disposition towards them, towards us. God has set his love on his people. He's chosen them. He will honor this commitment. He will keep his people forever. His commitment and kindness to his people will never cease. Do you see how looking at God changes your disposition? Do you see how it starts to lift the poet out of his utter despair? There is hope. There is God after all. And the character of our God can be counted on. His compassions, they never fail. If his compassions never fail, there must be hope even in my condition right now where I see no hope. There must be hope for the poet. There must be hope for Israel, even in this dark time. There is hope even for you in the darkest of times. Verse 23. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now, there's probably something of a double meaning here. God's compassions are new every morning. When they appear, they are also very much like the morning, giving us new hope for the day. What exactly are his compassions? Richard Brooks writes, God's compassions are his pity, his sympathetic love and kindness, especially to the needy, helpless, and destitute. Through God's compassions, through his mercies, we learn of his great faithfulness to us. He enables us to persevere. He enables us to persevere through the grace he gives us in our circumstances. It's his compassions to us. This leads the poet to conclude, The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope in him. This reminds me of Augustine's famous statement. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. This is the essence of what the poet is saying. The psalmist captures this in Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now the word portion means to divide something, like cutting something up and giving a part to someone. The psalmist and the poet are happy with the portion that they've been given. It is the Lord, not the temporary things of earth. Brooks writes, only those who are satisfied with God alone will not be seized with impatience, folly, and anxiety when troubles come. We have his great salvation, continual presence, unerring wisdom, fatherly care, infallible guidance, everlasting love, eternal inheritance, complete sufficiency, and most of all, we have him. Because we have him, 
we have hope in him. Now the poet continues in verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. In this verse, we have two verbs you may have noticed. Wait for him and seek him. The one who waits for Yahweh, for the Lord, doesn't take matters into their own hands. They aren't overcome with despair at the trial that they're going through. But in the trial, they seek the Lord. They pursue the Lord. They seek to draw close to him. They seek him in prayer. They seek him in worship. They seek him in his word. To wait for the Lord is to seek the Lord. But in verse 26, we have this thought continued. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. How do we generally respond when we are met with suffering, when we're met with trials and great difficulties? Don't we generally want to defend ourselves? I don't deserve this. What in the world could God be doing through what's going on in my life? How can this be good? I wouldn't treat my children this way. The poet says, it is good to wait silently for the salvation of the Lord. Don't go charging off defending yourself, thinking you're above what's happening to you. Wait silently for the Lord. What is he doing? What has he called me to do? How will I get through this? Wait for the salvation of the Lord. Wait for his help. Wait for his deliverance. Throw yourself on him. Hebrews 12, 15 tells us, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. This verse applies directly to these verses in Lamentations. How is it that we come short of the grace of God? We focus our attention on our unjust suffering, and we ignore our God. Doing this allows us to develop a root of bitterness that grows into our heart, that we nurture, and it affects and influences all those around us as we spew forth our vile, if, if you will. This was the threat to the poet in verses 19 and 20, when he habitually looked at his terrible circumstances. And he could have kept on going with this, he could have rejected all hope, but he remembered the Lord. He chose to focus on God and his goodness. He went after the grace of God. This is the same choice we have when we find ourselves in the midst of struggles. Are we going to look at our struggles and clothe ourselves with them? Let them define us and nurture bitterness in our own hearts. Are we going to look at our Savior, see his grace in our lives, 
Wait on Him in the midst of the trial. Seeking Him all the time. Will we look for His compassions that He demonstrates to us as we go through the trial? He has given us Himself. Will we embrace Him in the midst of trial? Will we see the beauty of His character that we rely on for our hope? Will we go after our Savior, or will we let the bitterness of the trials enter our hearts? Will we choose hope through our Savior, or will we choose bitterness in ourselves? Now, this next section I want to look at here are verses 27 through 30. <coughs> These verses speak truth that we really don't find very pleasant. Yet the truth gives us a great hope. It's a source of our perseverance. Richard Brooks introduces this section saying, Afflictions are good for us. Doesn't that make you feel better? But that's what is being said here. In these verses, we find God's purposes in our suffering. It's his purposes that we most focus on as we're going through trials. Look at verse 27. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Brooks writes of this, It is his yoke that we are to bear, and it will add greatly to our support under and profit from our afflictions to see and acknowledge his sovereign hand and power over us. Now remember what a yoke is. It's a wooden thing you put on oxen so they can pull together. The yoke of wood. The poet is saying that there's a yoke of God, which means his sovereign hand, his power over us. The poet is saying it's good for those in youth to bear the yoke of God. What he is saying is that the young would do well to understand that when trials and suffering come, it is God who's bringing it to them. In the trials and sufferings, they should learn to submit to God's sovereign hand, to his power on their life. You see, the earlier in life this is learned, the better off the Christian will be. It will keep us from all kinds of sin, all kinds of error. It will enable us to glorify God in our suffering. It will teach us to submit to God in all areas of our lives. The humility of receiving or acknowledging God's yoke is expounded on in verse 28. Let him sit alone and be silent since he has laid it on him. Because this yoke, because this suffering comes from God, we should receive it with submission. Willingly look for God's purposes in our suffering. That's to be our attitude towards suffering and trials. But this isn't typically how we respond to suffering. We like to cry and moan and whine. We are like the proverbial stuck pig, whining and complaining, making a case as to why we shouldn't have to suffer. The poet calls us to sit alone and be silent. 
Don't go around rallying people for your cause, justifying yourself in front of others. Don't go about complaining and whining over your circumstances or complaining against God. Receive your circumstances as the yoke of God. Verse 29. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. The idea here is receiving God's assignment with humility, without grumbling. When you kneel humbly with your mouth in the dust, aren't you kind of afraid to open it up because you might get dust in your mouth? <laughs> While serving God in humility, we're to look for hope from God. God has given the trials the suffering. God also is the giver of hope. Verse 30. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach. As we think about this verse, ask yourself, what is your natural inclination when someone hits you in the face? Isn't it to immediately draw back to hit them back in the face? You know, you want to send them in the next week because what they did was not only an insult, it hurt. Here we're called to humility and servitude. We're called to give our cheek to the smiter. This has to immediately bring images to your mind of Jesus. And during the beating of the Roman soldiers, he was quiet like a sheep before shears. He received the reproach of men. The poet calls us to mimic our Savior, to receive the reproach of men. Now it's important to notice that these verses escalate our duties. Think about it. Verse 28 calls us to be silent when we are given something we don't like. Verse 29 calls us to humility, to put our mouth in the dust. Verse 30 calls us to submit to abuse and reproach. We grow in our obedience to the yoke of God in our lives. Now it's also worth stating that these verses speak particularly about the young. Learning to carry the yoke of God at a young age. If when you are young you learn humility and submission to God's plan, you will be served well. It will make your life easier. Because as you age, you are repeatedly called by God to bear his yoke. God gives afflictions at a young age, so our journey of sanctification is jump-started, as it were. Now think about your own life. What are the challenges, the suffering, the trials that you're going through right now? Did God give them to you? According to Lamentation, God gives us all things. Have you accepted the trials you are going through as the very yoke of God? Are you living under His sovereignty? Are you living in reliance upon His grace? 
Are you searching for him, actively searching for him? And not making the case against him. See the attitude difference there? Do you see that he's refining you and building you up in Christ through the trials and suffering he is taking you through? I was once told, or I once told someone, going through great trials and suffering, one of my best friends in this world, that I couldn't do what he was doing. He responded, if God called you to do it, you could. Because he would give you the grace to endure. Are you looking for God's grace to endure? Endure that to which he's called you. Look for God's purposes in your suffering. Now I want to finish up with the last point, that we must focus on God's justice. Now this might seem weird or harsh, but realizing that God will judge evil gives us hope. Look at verse 31. For the Lord will not reject forever. The poet is telling us there are things going on that are going to change. God doesn't discipline us forever. He doesn't bring suffering into our lives forever. And he doesn't ignore our prayers forever. Verse 32. If he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. Here we learn that God doesn't delight in giving us grief. If he gives us grief, he will remove it when his purposes are completed. And he will return to having compassion on us. Because his primary trait is his loving kindness. And compassion flows out of who he is. What's at his core? Verse 33 supports this view. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. Now the word here, translated willingly, means from the heart. The poet is saying that God's heart is not in afflicting his people. Richard Burke states, What it means is that God does not afflict us for pleasure or excitement, for no reason or for something to do. It is only when, he, when we provoke him to jealousy or in some other way give him just cause. How many of you actually take pleasure in disciplining your kids? There's something wrong with you if you do. Now in verses 34 and 36, we're given a list of things that are unjust. That are going on against the people of Jerusalem. And I take these things, because in poetry, there's a lot of opinions when you get into poetry. But I take these things as being done to Israel by the Babylonians. Remember, we're told in Isaiah that God will judge the Babylonians for their sins against Israel. So what are the injustices being committed? Verse 34, to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the land. Now this may have been a war cry, or the cry of the victor of a war. They would dominate, they would crush their prisoners. 
Verse 35 we read, to deprive a man of justice in the presence of the Most High. Here we see that the Babylonians are denying justice to the people of God. And this is being done in the very presence of the Most High. God sees what is happening as this injustice is being done. And then verse 36. To defraud a man in his lawsuit. Of these things the Lord does not approve. They're defrauding people in lawsuits. This usually happens to the poor, to the weak, to the people who can't defend themselves. The poet determines after stating these injustices that the Lord absolutely does not approve of them. He will fix it. He will bring his justice to bear. What are the injustices that he has called you to bear? Do you feel as though he doesn't see what's going on with you? You know, you're the only person in the world he doesn't see. Are things happening to you right before his face? Be assured that God sees. And he won't reject you forever. He will have compassion on you. Because he is faithful and he is full of loving kindnesses. After his purposes have been fulfilled, he will remove his hand and pour out his compassions upon you. If he didn't want to be compassionate to you, why does he sprinkle compassions through your trials, through your sufferings? His little compassions are a sign of greater compassions to come. You ever watched a baseball game where there's an outfielder, he's going for the ball, and all of a sudden the sun blinds him or he stops looking at the ball and it falls right next to him? <laughs> he looks ridiculous, doesn't he? Have you ever seen a football game where the receiver's wide open, the ball's thrown right to him, and he turns his head right before the ball gets to him and he drops it? He looks incompetent. What happened in each of those cases? The player lost his focus. He was distracted by something. He looked away. God calls us in this passage to focus on him. When we are in the midst of trials, when we're in the midst of our suffering, of great difficulty, he calls us to focus on him. It's when we look at him that our souls are satisfied. That's when we find grace when we realize that he is our portion. It's when we look at him that we see his purposes in our suffering. It's when we look at him, we know he is displeased with the injustices that we are suffering. And we know he will judge them. Even in the middle of our suffering, we can have abundant life that he gives to us. Because God has given himself to us. And we can feed upon him as we focus upon him. Let's pray. Father, help us in our trouble and our distress to know that it's not an accident. To know that you know that it is happening, that you have even brought it. 
Help us to turn to you in faith, to look at you, to seek you, to seek your grace, to see your compassions that you pour out freely upon us. May we stay focused on our Savior. May we be focused on you as our God, that we might be faithful, that we might bring you glory, and we might enjoy the abundance of life that you give us, even in our suffering. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now I encourage you to take a moment to think about the suffering you're going through and God's reaction to it. Father, help us to not be absorbed with our circumstances. Help us to turn and focus upon our Savior. May we learn from him. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.